0: hello lovely listeners welcome back to another episode of coffee and crime my name is lisa Marie ray hello to anyone tuning in for the first time it is so good to have you here um well little announcement if you are listening on your headphones or through your car speaker however you're listening usually spotify apple podcast google podcast wherever you're listening The announcement is that I'm also video recording this. And if you're watching this on YouTube, then this is the first time I'm recording an episode, which is super exciting. So I am stepping into the world of video podcasting one toe at a time. I have no idea if this is how it's kind of gonna be from now on. This is just something that I wanted to like try. So we're doing it. We're just trying out. So hi how you doing (laughs) i hope you're all having a great first two weeks of 2023 how crazy it's already two weeks in I swear, it's like gonna be christmas next year (laughs) i don't know i don't know well if it is your first time each week i sit down with a cup of coffee and i talk to you all about a true crime story got my coffee i am having a mochaccino from avalanche which is really yummy and it's like a supermarket brand but it's like mm, i love it i love it i love coffee Coffee. i like asmr asmr for you guys anyway i'll stop that now yeah you could probably tell i'm being a little bit awkward because i'm also video recording myself and i don't really know where to look so (laughs) because <laughs> there's like I can see myself on the screen but then I know that I need to look at the camera but that's like slightly off center and it's a bit a bit odd but essentially with the the video aspect of this if you're listening you know through your headphones I just want you guys to know that you're not missing out on anything I'm not going to be like showing things there's not going to be pop-up screens or anything like that it's all just going to be the same stuff this is just another avenue of getting coffee and crime podcast out there for people to listen to, so we'll give it a go. It might not take, but we'll see. We'll see. So it is just me this week. Last week I had my big brother on the show, which was super cool. It was really cool. Uh, my brother's not really a true crime person, so it was quite good of him to come on. And we had a chat about the Aurora shootings that happened in 2012. We talked a lot about mental health. We talked a lot about legal proceedings, which he had, you know, like no knowledge of. So it was quite nice for me to go through like explanations and definitions with him because it just allows me to like take a step back. And, you know, when I'm doing this podcast and I say, you know, all these kind of terms, it's like, well, if you're listening and you don't know, it's kind of um, annoying. And you're like, oh, well, what's that? So it's like, oh, well, that's nice to kind of go through all that kind of more basic stuff. Some of it's not basic stuff, actually. So um, that was quite cool. But I never thought <laughs> that I would have a, like a 20 to 30 minute conversation with my older brother about Batman. And like that tied in with the whole case, which is we didn't just randomly talk about Batman. It did tie in. But it's like I just, yeah, never thought I'd talk to him for that long. About Batman, but there you go. There you go. So it is just me this week, and you know, we do tell all these super pleasant stories on uh true crime podcasts. It's all rainbows and butterflies over here. Well, I wish it was, but it's not, it's not, that's not why we're here. We are here to. Well, everyone's got different reasons. Everyone's got different reasons for hosting their own true crime podcast. Well, everyone's got reasons for hosting any type of podcast. And for me, it's education and prevention slash intervention. Lots of shins, shin, 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 shin. Um, I did a degree in criminology, so I learned a lot about uh, recognizing crime, reasons behind crime, and then I specifically kind of hounded my studies in on serial killers and women who kill, which is why this week's episode will be a serial killer one, which I always kind of I leave lots of big gaps in between my serial killer ones because they are quite heavy. They are a lot, there's a lot that goes into them. Um but this one is a little bit different because it's a different type of serial killer that I haven't covered yet on this podcast. And I kind of gave a little hint before it's about women serial killers and this one uh different for another reason it's from a non-westernized society so there's a huge different kind of like cultural aspect to it as well so now that I've been vague enough <laughs> let's kind of crack into it and roll with it so this week lovely listeners I want you to grab your cup of coffee or whatever caffeinated beverage you need to get through your day and join me as I tell you about Ranukashind Shind and Seema Gavit, who are India's deadliest sisters. Warning, the following episode contains adult language, discussion on kidnapping, child abuse, and child murder that listeners may find disturbing. This podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. So it goes without saying that I'm probably not going to do really well on the pronunciations of a lot of places and names in today's episode. I have watched videos and documentaries and like other podcasts that have covered these crimes to try and get the pronunciations correct so I'm just apologizing in advance if I really do butcher them like to the point where you can't even recognize where I'm talking about so a little apology pre-apology for that. Uh, Also with information on this case a lot of it is kind of the crimes itself. But even then, there's not a lot of information like timeline. I'm very much like a timeline podcaster. I like to go through a chronological order. And there's not a lot that is publicly available. And I'm not sure if that's because um, Indian... You know like legal documents how publicly available they are and i just really i can find bits and bobs so that's kind of what's been put together so today might be actually a bit of a shorter episode which is not the end of the world considering i'll have to not only edit an a voice (laughs) uh episode but also the video one and that is what i am terrified about so We will be jumping around a little bit in terms of timeline just because we don't have heaps of information about one year at a time. Everything's kind of spread out. So just bear with me. We'll get through it and we'll go from there. This is all a learning experience, all a learning experience. So we are going to start off in 1973, a woman by the name of Anjanabai, Uh, She is originally from the city of Nashik, which is in the state of Maharashtra. Maharashtra, which is the second most populous state in the country of India. It's also on uh, the west side. It's in western India. Um, But our our case begins today with Anjana Bai. She is fleeing the city of Nashik to the city of Pune which is about a five-hour drive to the south, still within the state of Maharashtra. And she is fleeing with a truck driver. And this truck driver isn't just a truck driver, oh no, he is also her baby daddy. Which is why I think she is fleeing. There is no kind of confirmed reason, but she didn't marry him, but she's having his baby. So, you know, cause of speculation. However, after she gave birth, to their daughter Renuka, who was born in 1973. The truck driver, aka Baby Daddy, abandoned the two women, Anjanabai and their daughter, which is not very nice, it's very sad. But in the city of Pune, Anjanabai married a retired soldier by the name of Mohan Gavit, and in 1975 she gave birth to their daughter, so she's got two daughters now, and the youngest daughter is called Sima Gavit. So again, without knowing a lot about early lives and where they were living or really any too much information, all we know is that Bai had to learn how to pickpocket and how to steal in order to get any kind of like food or supplies. So like she would take jewelry, she would take cash, she would take whatever she could to trade, to sell, so that she could get a little bit of little bit of rupee, a little bit of cash. Um, We know that Mohan was a retired soldier but we don't know if he had like a side hustle, we don't know if he had any kind of other income coming in, that wasn't specified. So we don't know why Anjana Bai had to start pickpocketing but maybe maybe he couldn't. If he was a retired soldier maybe he had some sort of disability, we don't know. But this is what she did and she would commit petty crime and she wasn't the best at it so she was often caught by police and was like harassed by them quite a lot Kind of like move on stop doing it We saw you don't do it again But it got to the point that Mohan was like sick of police showing up at their door So he was like, I'm out. I'm outies and he had abandoned Anjanabai with Seema his biological daughter and also his stepdaughter Ranuka. and he left and he got remarried now we're gonna put a pin in Mohan Even though he's left and he's out of the picture, I don't want you to forget him. He will come back. So remember him. Now, as Renuka and Seema were growing up, they actually learnt and they participated with their mother in pickpocketing and committing petty thefts. Usually because Seema being the youngest, she would cause some sort of like commotion or some sort of like drama, get people's attention, and then... Runuka would go and use her small slender finger, she was only like two years older, to go in and do some stealing. They would take the goods that they've got back to Anjanabai and she would do the kind of the trading and the selling and the kind of more um, financial aspect to make sure that they were all fed and had clothes and could get around. So that's what they were doing, they kind of used their like innocent child and if they ever got caught it was kind of like, we're only kids we can't do this, we're children, we're innocent. And that's how they got away with a lot of things. They did live a bit of a nomadic life, so they did move around Western India quite a lot. They stayed in the state of Maha... Oh, sorry, there we go. They stayed a lot in the state of Maharashtra. I'm so sorry, I'm butchering that. But they, uh, the main cities that they went to was Nashik, uh, Kolhapur, Tani... Kalyan and Puni. And they're cities that will come up quite a lot in this case. Uh, Every time police matters got too serious, if the kids got caught pickpocketing, if Anjanabai got caught, they would move on, move on to the next town. Or if there was any big events like festivals, processions, religious celebrations, anything that would gather a big crowd, Anjanabai Renuka, Seema, they were there as well, not to celebrate, not to join in, but to take some goods and move on. So that's kind of all we know about their early life. There was no paper trail, there was no documentation, they didn't go to school. Uh, It didn't sound like Anjanabai ever got a job because it would surely be documented somewhere and we just don't have any of that. So Not too sure, so we are gonna jump ahead a little bit. We're gonna jump ahead to 1989, where a now 16-year-old Renuka got married. Mm Mm-hmm, 16. She got married to a tailor in the city of Pune, and his name is Kiran Shindi. And also in 1989, she gave birth to their first son, Sudhir. Now, I'm not sure how much older Kiran is, than Renuka or how they got together what their relationship was like but that's where we're up to we're up to 1989 she's got married she's just had a kid that's where we're up to that's kind of all the information we have kind of pre-crimes and now we're kind of going to get a going to get a, get going a, to get a, get to get going to get the ball rolling with what happened so in 1990 and Janabai, Renuka, Kiran, Seema, and now two-year-old Sudia lived in like a room pretty much. It was very minimal. It was very minimalistic. Hardly anything. They didn't have much. Kiran was working as a tailor in the city. However, whatever income he was bringing in was like not enough to cover all the costs. Like to feed what? Four adults and a kid? Plus like maybe rent i'm not too sure how things work over in india but to cover the cost of living was probably not enough for four adults on like one income plus a child and like if you've got kids raise raise your hands i see you in the back i see you um you know that kids cost a lot so because he couldn't cover all the costs ranuka and simas knew that they probably had to start contributing by stealing so one day Renuka and Sudhir her son were visiting the okay please forgive me I'm really gonna butcher this um, Shatur Shringi temple in Gondhali Nagar oh, I'm so sorry uh, where she tried to snatch the purse off a woman. when she tried to steal it and this woman saw her Ranuka pretty much gaslit this woman and was like I'm I'm a mother with a child. how how could I be a thief? I, I can't commit crime. I'm a mom. This is what we'd like to think about mothers, but unfortunately, there are some out there who don't have those motherly instincts. Well, anyway, um, so yeah, pretty much gaslit this woman and was like, "I'm. I didn't try to steal. I've. I've got a kid. What? Wasn't me. Was me. me Was me. This woman like accepted that and was like, "All right. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Just." Can you step away from me? Like, why are you so close to me, man? Like, go. Go away. So she got out of it. Renuka got out of it. And this incident kind of lit a light bulb in her head. And she went home and she was speaking to her husband Kiran and her sister Seema and her mom and Janabai and pretty much said, we can use small children to conduct these thefts and it'll be the best way to go. Kids go in there, they cause a distraction. Us adults get in there with our little... Um, is it nimbly? Nimbly fingers? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not used to people seeing my actions when I do my podcast. But, you know, get in there with your little little slim fingers. Pit pocket stuff while the kids are causing a distraction. And then we get out of there. If anything happens to the kids, we can just leave them. Because you know what? We're going to kidnap children. Renuka was not going to turn into a baby factory. And then give birth to all these like, like little thieves. Oh no, no, no. They decided to kidnap children off the street and use them to do their bidding. Like, who just, who thinks of that? Who, I honestly, guys, this case, this case stresses me out because it just makes no sense to me. But anyway, so they kind of all came to an agreement that they were going to do this, which is like, for all four of them, no one had a moral compass in that room, at that table, at that conversation. No one thought, hmm. This might not be the best idea. They were all like, yeah, man, let's do that. Let's just go kidnap some children. <sighs> wow, well, in July of the same year, 1990, Renuka snatched the baby boy off a beggar woman in the street of Kolhapur and brought him back up to Pune, which is a four-hour journey. And she took the bus. Four hours on a bus with a baby? No, thank you. Uh-uh, no way. I wouldn't do that. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. they usually uh took buses to get around sometimes they just like jumped onto like back of carts Kiran did have a car but he had to use it because he had to go to work because he actually still had a job so that's kind of how they got around but this is kind of their thinking they decided if they stole children from far outside the city like this is four hours away Kolhapur is 4 hours away from Pune. So if we take children that are that far away, it's going to make it a lot harder for police, it's going to make it a lot a lot harder for locals to find these kids, right? Plus, the state of Maharashtra is like I said is the second most populous state in all of India with over 112 million people in it, and as sad as it is, a few bigger kids go missing, nobody is going to raise an eyebrow. Unless a child from like a wealthy family of high status goes missing, what are you gonna do with a with a, a state of that many? But and that's just one state, not not the whole of India. That's just one state. It's what are you gonna do? So Ranuka took this poor baby back to Pune, and he was named Santosh. Now we don't know if that was like his birth name given by his actual mother or if this was just like a name that the the trio and when I talk about the trio I am talking about Anjanabai, Seema and Renuka so we don't know if that was his actual name or not but that was the name he was given and he was just under a year old when he was taken. Jumping ahead again in April of 1991 Seema and Anjanabai took Santosh back to Kolhapur to the Mahalaxmi Mahalaxmi Temple. I do apologize if I'm saying that wrong. I will keep apologizing, even though I didn't apologize at the start. <laughs> what was that noise? <laughs> so they took Santosh back to Kolhapur to the Mahalaxmi temple. And then we're gonna use him as a like a distraction of some sort so that Seema could commit theft. Because you've got people there at the temple, they're worshipping. They're in there, they're, you know, being devoted to their faith, and they were just going to go around and pick some pockets, pick some purses. That's what they did. However, the way that Angenabai decided to use Santosh as a distraction, one, makes no sense to me, and two, is just absolutely horrific. So a little trigger warning, I gave you one big one at the start, but this just isn't really, really nice. And Anjanabai decided to throw Santosh, who's at this point probably just over a year, decided to throw Santosh with full force at the ground. Just chucked this baby to the ground. Obviously, he sustained some injuries and he's crying his eyes out because even I would be, as like a fully grown adult, if someone threw me on the floor, I'd probably cry too, so... This is a one-year-old baby, what do you think is going to happen? But this is what they wanted because this crowd drew attention. Oh my gosh, there's a baby on the floor. Oh, it's got an injury, it might be bleeding, we don't know. It just said that he sustained some injuries. So of course there's going to be, a, you know, bringing a crowd like to make sure everything's okay. Did the mum fall over? Is she okay? Like, what, what happened? So because of this, this allowed Seema to go around, pickpocket and steal from those in the crowd. After they left the temple, they went to a bus station, and they were able to pick some more pockets on the way, pick some more purses. However, baby Santosh would not stop crying. He's a baby. He's just been thrown on the ground. He's had no medical like medical attention from whatever injuries he sustained from being thrown at the ground. He's crying his eyes out. It's still bringing attention, but now Seema and and Genevieve, they don't want this attention. So, like, what do they do? I'll tell you what they do. Seema goes into, like, a, like, the little bus station or the cafe or something, and she's sitting down eating, and she looks out the window, and she sees her, her mother holding baby Santosh and looking as if she's trying to calm him down, like, oh, no, baby's just crying, baby's hungry, baby's sleepy, just just tired. What she was actually doing, and Seema said later on, like, she was watching her mother doing this, uh, And Jannabi covered the baby's mouth with her hand, and then smashed his head against an iron bar, which ended up killing him instantly. She then disposed of baby Santosh's body by throwing him under a rickshaw heap. Now thankfully his body was discovered the very next day, like it's not like that was undiscovered and like left to rot or anything like that. It was discovered the very next day and reported to Laxmipur Police. But by that time, Seema and, and Janabai were long gone. Now, unfortunately, Baby Santosh was the first of many kidnapped and murdered children at the hands of these absolutely awful, awful women. Like, I have no words for them, they're just absolutely despicable. Now, we don't have the identities or the truth stories of all of the victims, but it is estimated that between 1990 and 1996, these three women kidnapped over 40, 4-0 children, with the average age being under 5. It was like a range of like 1 to 9, but the average number of children, that sorry, the average age was under 5 years old. They would be snatched from temples, from fairgrounds, from these big events, off the street, just anywhere that... And Jenna Seema and Renuka saw an opportunity, they took these children and just had no regard for their lives. Just, just snatched them, didn't matter who they were or where they came from. They were more or less from poor families. Um, it is important to note that some of the children were reported as missing, but like I said, they've come from poor families. It's a huge state with over 112 million people the police turned a lot of them away and especially if they didn't have any money, didn't have any wealth, the police kind of didn't care. And if there were so many of these reports coming in, then what are you to do? What we do know is that there is evidence of at least 13 children that were kidnapped used as distractions during thefts or even just as beggars on the street for the women. Just to bring in any kind of income, like is it a rupee, uh, or food, or any kind of valuable item that can be traded. But then when they were back inside the residence, inside the room, inside the living space that the trio had, they were just severely abused. They were threatened into silence, saying that they couldn't say anything to anyone when they were begging out on the street, that they had been kidnapped and were being held against their will. Um, They were abused, they were beaten up. If they cried, if they asked for food, they were just, like, tortured, really. It's so, it's so horrific. These three women had absolutely no regard for human life at all. And it's so interesting, they were so ready to abuse these children, right? Considering that two of them, and Anjanabai and Renuka, were mothers themselves. Like, they had gone through the process of carrying a baby in the womb labor, childbirth, holding your baby for the first time, watching your baby grow, and yet they could be so cold and callous towards other children. That's what baffles me about mothers who kill, and I mean, even Seema, she wasn't a mother, but she was a woman. We're supposed to like, you know, have these natural motherly instincts, or these like protecting, these nurturing instincts, and she just doesn't. And she's like, nah. No thanks. Like, there was a seven-month-old baby. His name was Swapnil. And because of his constant crying, Seema, quote, could not deal with it, end quote, and dropped him down a stairwell and killed him. Because she couldn't deal with his crying. Like, it's just... I, I have no words because it is just so cold and it makes absolutely no sense. There was also a two-year-old called Shradra. Uh, they were hanged upside down by their feet and was slammed and pushed into a wall over and over and over again. Kind of like, you know the game, I know I shouldn't this is awful to compare it to, but what's that um, game like? where you've got the stick with the ball on it and you You've got to throw the ball around and stuff. But if you just drop it and it just hits the middle pole. Oh, what's that game called? Um, Oh, it's going to come to me at like 3 o'clock in the morning. But just like that. Just that ball being dropped against that pole. That's what this kid was just being pushed against the wall. Pushed against the wall. All because this child... This is just what the report said. I I don't know the gender of this child, unfortunately. uh, This child kept asking for its mother... So its punishment for asking for its mother, this two-year-old, was to be hanged from the ceiling and pushed and slammed against a wall. Unfortunately, this child died from a hemorrhage. It had a bleed in the brain, which doesn't surprise me at all because... like, I just, I just don't know. I just can't fathom this in my brain. How people can just do this to kids... Or to Well, to anyone. Anyone, really, but like, to a child who is innocent, has done absolutely nothing to you, and you think that you have this right over them to just tie them up and throw them against the wall. Um, Renuka and Seema took four-year-old Goldie, and they drowned him in the upstairs bathtub in the bathroom. Seema held his legs while Renuka, who is a mother with children pushed his head and held him under. Like, to do that, drown it, like, I... It's just... Like, those children did nothing. Nothing. And this is how they're being treated. When two-and-a-half-year-old Pankaj... I do apologise if I've said that really wrong. Pankaj wouldn't stop crying. She was beaten to death, placed inside a bag... Then the trio decided that they wanted to go to the movies and watch a film. So they took the bag with them, watched the movie while the bag was at their feet. They then went and got a bite to eat while the bag was at their feet and then decided to leave the bag in the cinema bathroom. It's disgusting. Knowing that you're there, you're sitting in a cinema with other people and stuff as well. You're in some sort of cafe, you're grabbing a bite to eat. There's people around and you're just carrying this bag with a a two-and-a-half-year-old body inside and you're just like, okay with that? Those are the deaths um, that, well, they're all the deaths that we're going to get into detail about. That's kind of like, I suppose, the worst of it. Um, I wanted to get that done because the, the reporting and everything that's come out, like it is kind of all over the shop, but that's kind of the information that I was able to pull. Um, the other children that were kidnapped either they either escaped during thefts or they were abandoned by the trio if they couldn't like get them after the commotion of if, if other people were getting in the way or if it was going to look super suspicious if they took them or they would just disappear and no one knows where they went so this cycle of kidnapping beating threatening the children and everything. It went on for six years. And in this time, Renuka had three more children of her own. So she had the first, um, you know, in 1989, it started that, and then in the next six years, she has another, she's got four children, yet she's out here killing others. A lot of it obviously would have been Seema and Anjanabai because Renuka was too busy being pregnant and in labor, but I don't think that would have stopped her. I think if anything, her being pregnant out trying to pickpocket and stuff would have made her less assuming. You know, that's the thing about these women. They're just so unassuming because they're, one, they're women, and two, they've got kids around them, so they must be fine. They must be innocent. How could they? How could they? And this was their thinking as well. It's quite interesting because there are no reports of the trio ever buying anything lavish or fancy. You know, they've got no super nice clothes. They've got clothes but they don't have any like super like fancy labeled uh, clothing they don't get like a big house they don't get uh, big cars or anything like that so it's like I don't know how much stuff they stole over this over the years and got the kids to steal and all that kind of stuff but anything of monetary value they didn't buy anything huge with it it probably just went to food or transport and it's like well I don't think that's worth killing kids over I don't think anything's worth killing kids over but what do I know but all of this this whole cycle it all came to a head in October of 1996 when a woman by the name of Pratiba had alerted the Nashik police that her eldest daughter Kranti had gone missing and Pratiba had actually suspected and named Anjanabai as the suspect So who is this woman? And how did she know to name Anjanabai? Like actually give the police her name? Well, Pratibha is the wife of Mohan Gavit. Now if you remember, we put a pin in him. I told you not to forget about him. Take that pin out. We're taking him out because he's coming back. When Mohan left Anjanabai because of the police harassment and because of her petty thefts, he remarried. Pratiba, And they had a couple of girls, a couple of daughters, and now one of them had gone missing. Mm-hmm. That is how Pratiba gave police Anjanaba's name. As soon as police got her name, they opened an investigation. Like, there was no deli-deli, there was no time wasting. They opened an investigation with her as the main suspect, Because she was obviously on their record for kind of the petty thefts that she had committed in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And there were some rumors starting to go around the place about her thieving escapades and her kidnapping escapades. So police were like, all right, that's it. Time's up. Let's go get her. However, by caught wind that law enforcement were after her, so the trio, the three women, they went into hiding. I think they must have, whatever kids were left like, set them free, or whatever, they might not have had any kids at that point, it's unsure of, but they said that they went into hiding. And this was in, like, late October. On November 19th, 1996, so about a week or so later, they decided to reemerge, stop hiding, because they wanted to go and attempt to kidnap Mohan and Pratibha's other daughter. Which is a huge ballsy move. Seeing as they were under suspicion for kidnapping their eldest daughter. They went into hiding. They've come out to try and kidnap the younger one. Not sure what the thinking is there. But they resurfaced. They tried to kidnap this the younger daughter. But police apprehended them. And they were taken into custody. Now... During interrogation, the three women said nothing, tight-lipped, nada, nothing. And Janabai was described as being stone-like, uh, quote, she would just sit there and look, never once did that woman crack, end quote. That was from one of the law enforcement officers who was interviewing her. Police also tracked down Kiran, Ranuka's husband, to have him questioned about Kranti's disappearance, but it would ultimately be Sima, the youngest daughter who cowered first and admitting to not only kidnapping but killing Kranti Gavit, her half-sister, technically. She told police that ever since Mohan, her father, left Anjanabai, her mother, she had been so focused on nothing but getting revenge against him. And children were the way to do it. She waited until... She had the prime opportunity and she struck Mohan where it hurt. She went after his children. So all of this was about revenge on Mohan for leaving her. But Seema also revealed that the only reason why she had any hand in it, Seema had any hand of it, was because she was so scared of her mother. So we're going to hear about this a little bit later as well. So because of this confession from Seema that, yes, they indeed kidnapped and now murdered Kranti. They weren't suspecting that because they hadn't found her. You can't just suspect people had died. They weren't sure what had happened. They didn't even know for sure if Anjani Bai had kidnapped or if it might have been someone else. But now they had this confession, so... They were able to get a warrant to search their place of residence, and I should mention there are conflicting reports as to like where this is physically taking place. Some reports say it's in Nashik, and some places some say that it's in Kolhapur. So a little bit unsure, but upon inspection of wherever the residence is, police found clothing of children who did not match any of Ranuka's children's uh, size nor did it match 9-year-old Kranti's size so they're like what's all this who's whose kids are these like these clothes whose kid who do they belong to there was diapers there was baby stuff there was bloody rags blood all over the walls photos of Renuka's like children's birthday parties with kids in them that had either been reported missing or were just unknown To people in the local area. They're like we don't know these kids. We don't recognise them. So police are like. Maybe something bigger is at large here. Like you've got this room. That's one full of blood. So there's like your first red flag. And then the second part is. Well it's all these. Like baby clothes. And all these like kids clothes. That would never fit any of the, the, the children. That they know about. So what's going on? Then they started to. Uh, kind of uh, match evidence in the residence with uh, missing persons reports and tips that had come in about missing and murdered children that had been found so dots are starting to be connected people let me just take this last sip because i'm i'm ready now i'm ready Mm. all right so uh also kiran shindi Ranuka's husband, he started to pick up that like this was not going to end well for anyone. So he actually turned approver in this case, which essentially means he became the prosecution's key witness. Key key, (laughs) witness. I don't know what that was. He became the prosecution's key witness in this case. And he provided details of the crimes committed, details about where bodies were buried, which I don't think police were like fully expecting to hear about murders just yet they were just there, like under suspicion that kids have been kidnapped and then all of a sudden they're hearing about bodies being disposed of and buried in all sorts of different places and uh obviously with Seamus' confession as well about Kranti like this was not what police were expecting so like I said Kiran turned to prove it he's like no I'm saving my own ass here and I am going to work for you guys and it worked he got acquitted of any kind of cooperation that he had he didn't really have much with kind of the killing side of things but he was like the getaway driver because he had a car and he was present and he didn't stop or intervene which to me you're just as guilty however he he ta- he changed sides <laughs> he, he, he ain't loyal to his wife so but for good reason because he would have gotten to quite a lot of shills if he stayed on his wife's side so He was acquitted for his cooperation if he testified against the three women. So with all the evidence and the testimonies coming in from the residents, from witnesses, from missing persons reports, with talking to families, with talking to everyone, there was only enough concrete evidence to prosecute the trio of 13 kidnappings and nine murders. Well, there was evidence to suggest nine murders, Plus uh, confessions that Seema, like Seema confessed to about nine murders. However, there was only concrete evidence to convict of five murders, which is really sad. It's really really awful, because if the tr- if the prosecution tried to like charge for nine murders, a good defence could land some serious doubts in the trial and. The women could be acquitted for all charges. So they played it on the safe side. They couldn't locate four of the other murder victims. So with nobody, no case. Which is very, very unfortunate. Um, also interesting, of those five murders, uh, Kranti Gavit was not included of them. Um, which is interesting because the disappearance of Kranti was what like in, started off this investigation. But... Her kidnapping was counted, but her murder wasn't because, once again, no body, no case. They couldn't prove that they had actually done that. And, like I said, a good defense would be able to poke holes in a case brought against a perpetrator with no concrete evidence, only circumstantial, very strong circumstantial evidence. But without any concrete physical evidence, it is a lot harder. So... Three women are all charged, and Janda, and Janda, sorry, and Janda Bai is, you know, claiming not guilty. She said that they are being set up, that someone is framing them. She's blaming Mohan for everything, saying no, no, I didn't kidnap your kid, I didn't kill your kid. Even though her daughter is sitting in the next room, going, we kidnapped them, we killed them. So everyone's all a bit like, what? What do we do here? where are we going? This is all very confusing, and it's all a bit of a mess. It doesn't help for me that, you know, telling you guys this, that we don't have, like, all parts of the story, we don't have the, kind of, like, records, we don't have the, like, transcripts of things. Unfortunately, we've just, kind of, got, like, news reports, and media, and and whatnot, and we all know that, you know, with Chinese whispers, things can, kind of, get um, skewed and that's why we get a lot of like conflicting reports and it's very hard to like cross-check everything but we've got to do with what we've got. So the three women, they've been arrested, they've been charged for 13 kidnappings and five murders while awaiting trial in early 1998. and Bai died of illness didn't say what, she said she died of illness while in prison, so she never got to answer for any of her crimes, and I hope that she rots in hell, because she is more or less the mastermind of this whole operation, and we will circle back to that in just a minute, however, she never got to pay for anything. Yeah, okay, she did like one year in jail. Whoop-de-doo. whoop de See, this is the thing about video, you can see my facial reactions. (laughs) She did not get to answer for any of the crimes and she, she got off easy. She got off easy and it like makes me so mad. It really does. I'm just aware that I'm being watched, so. Because I've decided, this is all my own doing, having myself recorded and videoed and I don't really know what to do. But yeah, I'll just like look down and be like, makes me so mad that she died and that she never got to stand in front of a like a jury I'm not sure how it works in India but she never got to well she definitely never got to go in front of a judge and hear about her crimes and and go through that but yeah so you know rotten hell Darbage. the uh, trial began in early 2000 and during the trial the prosecution actually examined 156 witnesses all of these witnesses had claimed to like see the women with the children out and about um, seen them commit theft uh, either reported it, either reported missing children, those were the kind of witnesses that were coming in and the defense's job was pretty much just to poke holes in everyone's story, you know, plant some seeds of doubt uh, into their stories, whether or not it was definitely Seema and Renuka they saw and was it definitely this child or was it definitely this date, you know like you know what I mean, like kind of suggesting that their memory isn't really that good like I said the trial was like in 2000 so it's about you know, a minimum of four years since the last kind of incidents and before that was six years. So, you know, within a 10-year gap, you know, 10-year time period, do you really remember this correctly? Do you really remember? Was it definitely Seema? Was it definitely Renuki? You know, those kind of things. That's what the defence is pretty much there to do. However, there were two key witnesses for the prosecution, which pretty much put everyone to shame. Well, not to shame, but, you know, kind of solidified everything. The first one, actually probably not so much, but this was a woman by the name of Vidya Kulkarni and she was a neighbor to the trio. She lived next door and she reported about all the screams and all the crying and all the noises and she also was kind of uh, there to be a witness against the non-existent case of Clanti's death, even though that's not part of the charges she kind of was like, yeah, I I saw them do it. Uh, She said, quote, my apartment window opened theirs. Sorry. She said, quote, my apartment window opened on theirs. I could see them beating up Kranti. I had so many things to tell. My daughter used to play with Ranuka's children and she even accompanied Anjanabai to the market several times, end quote. So this woman lived next door. So that's a that's a pretty key witness, like I said she talked about hearing the screams, the noises, the cries, but then she was saying about how she saw them beat up Kranty, well the defence came in and said how could you be 100% sure that it was Kranty and not just other child, like another child, as if that makes this any better, but I get what the defence is doing, he's got to make sure that again, that beyond reasonable doubt they've they've got to they've got to get that nailed in and this woman unfortunately couldn't say like with a hundred percent certainty that it was Kranti so that's why another reason why there's like no murder charge with Kranti only kidnapping but obviously that's quite a strong testimony for kidnapping if it's like well I've seen Kranti in your apartment and she doesn't look like she wants to be there because she's getting beat up on the floor you know what I mean so the other key witness was of course Kiran Shindi And he was there, he gave details about all the crimes, he gave details about all the murders and even his involvement, he did say uh, how he was involved. At the end he ended up getting a pardon and like I said acquitted of any kind of charge in relation to uh, Renuka and Seema. He He was pardoned, he was out of it. Don't know how I feel about that but you know, what can you do? So, like I said earlier, Renuka and Sima had actually pleaded not guilty to their charges, but they maintained their innocence on the basis that all their actions was caused by Anjanabai, their mother. They pretty much said that she was the mastermind in all this, which she was, but that they uh, did what she asked because they were so scared of her, and that they didn't want to, like, anger her, they felt trapped under her thumb. And it's like, I, like I said, I believe it. I believe that she was the mastermind and I bet she was calling the shots, but it doesn't really matter. It does not excuse the actions that these two women took. Renuka was married, for goodness sake, and had four kids and a husband. They could have left easy. He had a car and let's face it, he was a man. So like he automatically has power over women. So, why couldn't they just get up and get out of it? Seema, I understand, okay, she wasn't married, she was a couple of years younger, not as easy to get out, she probably wouldn't make it on her own, that kind of thing. But it's not an excuse for what these sisters did, and... Like, it, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, because it's not only did they, like, just kill these kids, they tortured them, and they made them suffer. Like, there is a huge difference between, like, just going and, like, killing a kid, like, one stab to the heart, overdone, no suffering, no pain, no nothing, and throwing a seven-month-old baby down a stairwell. That is the big difference here. If your mother was pulling the strings and you were so scared and you didn't want to be there, why did you kill these kids in such a torturous way and in such an extreme way that did not need to be done? Do you get like do you get what I'm saying that's that's how I feel about this it's like I have no doubt that she was the one calling the shots but you have to take responsibility for your own actions and how far and how extreme you took this and that's what you need to pay for like there's no getting out of this your mum's your mum died your mum is now dead she has no response she can't defend herself even though there is no defense because she is also a despicable human being but there is no You can't just go, well, she's dead, so you'll just have to take my word for it. It's like you, you held down a kid in the bathtub. You threw a child down the stairs. You bashed a child into the wall over and over and over again. You can't tell me that you did all of that to that extreme because you were scared of your mum and you wanted out. That doesn't, that doesn't sit with me. I hope that makes sense to you guys, you lovely listeners. If you disagree and you think actually know that they're fine, and yes, they were all just under their mum's thumb, then, like, you know, we'll have a chat about it. There's That's what's so good about people's opinions. You can all have different ones and have a great conversation about it. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, but... On the 29th of June, 2001, the Sessions Court of Kolhapur found the two sisters guilty on all counts. The 13 counts of kidnapping and the 5 counts of murder. And the Kolhapur High Court sentenced them to death by hanging. Which would have made them the first women to be hanged in India since 1955. And obviously one of them would have needed to be hanged first. There's only been one other woman hanged, and that was in nineteen fifty five. So they would have been the second and third woman hanged in the entire history, well, not probably not the entire history, but you know, in the history of India, Re- recorded I suppose the recorded history of India, which is just to me like wow, just that's just insane, and that was like, in two thousand one. So that was, well, was, like twenty one years ago now, but. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it was 21 years ago, it kind of seems like it was like three years ago. Can't believe it's 2023. Wow, just give me a minute, I'm having a bit of a crisis. So, initially, the sisters were sent to separate prisons. Seema was sent to Yawada jail in Pune, while Ranuka was sent to Nagpur jail. But they were not happy about this, they were both very disturbed by the separation. They just wanted to be with each other. They were like, Well, we're gonna die, let us just be with each other until the end. We've been here. Together since the start, let's see it all the way through. Renuka would often go on hunger strikes in jail and she would make a fuss and she would protest about being in a separate jail from her sister and she also made a huge fuss about her children, about what was going on with them. They did get rehomed, the eldest one Sudhir, he was now um, about to turn 18, so once he turned 18 he decided to like pretty much adopt his younger siblings, like become their full-time caretaker. And Renuka wanted to make sure that he had access to all of her bank accounts. Or like any kind of money, any kind of, you know, uh, money that her and Kedan had. Her bank accounts were all sealed. And she was not happy about it. And she was going off her nut at uh, her children's social worker. It's called an advocate. Um, And this advocate would come in and give her updates about her her children and where they were. And this uh, advocate, her name was Swati Sarode, She said that Renuka, quote, would fret over what would happen to them, end quote. Meaning that, you know, her children, she was so like, where's my kids? What's happening to them? Are they set up? Are they okay? Are they being looked after? Are they looked after? And Swati even admitted to being so confused, as am I, about how dedicated Renuka is to the welfare of her children while she was so evil in the way she treated and killed other children. Like, me too, girl. It makes no sense to me about how you could, like I said, have a baby. Go through, like, the, the process of growing that baby in your womb, holding your baby for the first time, watching your baby grow up, while, like, in the next room you're just throwing them here and kicking them there. And it just, it just makes absolutely no sense to me. And I, I can't process it. I really can't. Uh, Renuka did end up getting transferred back to Yawada, um, where, where Seema was, and they sat on death row together. Oh, just crazy, I don't get it. But anyway, so, but she didn't get transferred until 2006, so 10 years after they were initially arrested. Now, in 2008 and 2009, both of the women had lodged mercy petitions to the president to be granted a pardon from the death penalty. It wasn't until 2012 and 2013 that the governor of Maharashtra had rejected the mercy pleas and then in July of 2014, President Pranab Mukherjee, he had also rejected them. However, this was a huge mistake made by the government because mercy pleas had to be responded within three months of them being filed. This took six to seven years for Renuka and Seema to get a response. Now, because of this F-up, because it's a huge one, you're meant to respond in three months, not six to seven years. Because of this muck-up, this gave the sisters grounds to go to the Bombay High Court and have their death sentences commuted. So an administrative error bit the Indian government on the ass if they wanted to put these women to death because now they couldn't, they couldn't put them to death, but even getting in front of the Bombay High Court and a response from them took another ridiculous amount of time, so this was, you know, 2014, then it was like, okay, we can start putting things into action, 2015, 2016, it wasn't until January the 18th, 2022, like nearly a year ago, that the Bombay High Court came back and said that indeed their death sentences would be commuted because of the, quote, gross delay, and quote, of the response to their mercy pleas. The High Court said that the length of the delay had, quote, a dehumanizing effect, end quote, on convicts because they were sitting there for six to seven years not knowing if they were going to live or if they were going to die. That's why the mercy pleas needed to be responded to in like about three months Which I understand. However, (laughs) however, I don't have any issue with these two women having that delay, not knowing if they were going to live or die. Because I'll tell you what, those children that they kidnapped had no idea if they were going to live or die. They were watching kids around them get pushed into walls and thrown down stairwells. They watched children go out to go on these, like, theft jobs and not come back. These kids didn't know if they were going to live or die. So to that, Seema, Rakuna, I say tough get over yourselves you're fucking lucky that you're still alive sorry it's making me mad now it's making me mad <sighs> but yes so their uh, death sentences did get commuted the judge presiding over this whole kind of little ordeal about the commuting of sentences he said that quote the sister's crimes are the sisters' crimes were heinous and that they were a menace to society and will remain in jail for the rest of their natural lives. And quote, this sits fine with me as well. You know, I actually prefer people to spend the rest of their miserable lives rotting in a cell in jail rather than just dying. To me, that kind of seems like a cop-out. I think sometimes it's kind of like, no, let them sit in a little cell by themselves and I hope the memories of those kids screaming Keeps them awake at night. That's honestly what I hope happens. I hope they sit there with only their own thoughts and the memories of the kids that, like the kids they took, and I hope it eats at them. And they have to do that for the rest of their lives. Rest of their lives. And I think I'm perfectly okay with that. They're about, they'd be about in their, oh, what would that be? 40s now? Yeah, about in their like mid 40s. Now, So they still could potentially have like another 40, 50 odd years. And I hope that they spend that time thinking about those children that they murdered so brutally and so horrendously. And that I hope that they just ha- hate themselves for the rest of their life. Because I am. I'm going to hate them for the rest of my life. But, you know, that is kind of it. Um, we don't really know anything about Anuka's children uh, like I said as soon as the oldest one turned 18 he kind of like took care of his younger ones but I don't know what they're up to they do go and visit their mum and their auntie they do go they are aware of what she did and the last I heard they go and visit her so that is kind of everything sorry I got a little bit heated there I think there was like that side effect of that coffee <laughs> it kind of hit me and I was like no I'm angry Arr. so Again, the camera can see me doing that. <sighs> um, but yes, that is the very brief knowledge of the life, but the crimes of Anjanabai, Ranukashindi and Sima Gavit. And there's a little bit of a different type of uh, serial killer episode. The last couple I've done, I've been able to do kind of a deep dive on psychology and the, you know, a true dive into the lives of these people, but This is different in a lot of aspects, so we don't have a lot of information about early life, so it's hard to fit them in with other serial killers, because they are, they did, they killed multiple, multiple children, and you know, well, multiple humans, they are serial killers, but they don't fit in with the types of Kemper, Dharma Gacy, uh, Bundy, like all of them. I mean, one big reason, they're women, so their reasons to kill does tend to be a little bit different than uh, male serial killers male serial killers <laughs> even though it's the same word my head had cereal like the breakfast food I don't know what just happened to my head then um they do differ from male serial killers um we don't know if they experience any kind of like behavioral aspect from the McDonald triad we we don't know these things we don't know if there was any head trauma in any of the three women I mean we don't know any of that. But also the biggest difference is the culture. We need to look this, look at this through a cultural lens. Because India is not a westernized society. So we have to look at. Okay well what. What happened in that culture. That led Anjanabai to pickpocket in the first place. And then get her children involved. And then turn to the point where. Okay now she wants to. Like she's alright killing children. Okay what's gone wrong here. If her true motive was to prepare with killing children in order to hit Mohan and his children, the uh, the husband who left her, Seema's biological dad, is this some sort of escalation we're seeing, and that does fit in with the kind of the serial killer. You know what we know about serial killers we we see an escalation, and is that what the kidnapping and the murders and all that and the you know start off as pit pocket and then it turned to kidnapping and then it turned to murder is that is that what this was and was the true motivation for all of it to prepare herself to plot her revenge on Mohan Gavit for leaving her we don't know well she died so we can't even really ask her we can't really find out that's the thing about this there is a lot that we don't know and that is a shame but I think it's still important to talk about this and especially ones uh, you know at, Cases that come from non-westernised society. Because I think that helps us to broaden our... I'm going to try and sound all philosophical here. (laughs) But if we try and kind of broaden our own lens. And have a look at like more of the world as a whole. Like you can't apply what a serial killer in say America is like. When you have serial killers in India. Who don't show any of the same sort of like behavioural aspects. It's like okay well what's the difference in how can we then go to a country like India and going, all right, well, this is what we need to uh, study and this is what we can recognize in a, in a young person uh, who's more likely to display serial killer tendency. You know what I mean? Like we need to be able to talk about this in a, through a different cultural lens to understand so that we can educate, that we can prevent, we can intervene from earlier on. I do hope that makes sense. My brain is very much fried. It is three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But, you know, it's fine. It's dedication. It's dedication. Um, But, yes, a little bit of food for thought there that, you know, I think, actually, I think the most consistent thing about these three women and the... The serial killers in, say, America and the U.S. and the West, Westernized serial killers, um, is how unassuming the perpetrator is. You know, they didn't look like killers. They were just three women out in the street with children. And like I said earlier in the ep- in the episode, you don't think, you don't look at a mother and go, oh, dodgy. But you might see someone with, you know, the the typical mustache and the glasses. You're like, oh yeah, serial killer. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't you don't look at a a mum with a child and think, oh yeah, she's going home and killing other children that aren't hers. It's just, it's it's unfathomable. And I mean, Kiran, Renuka's husband, he was a working member of society. And he was out there and he was tailoring and he had a job and he probably had some regular customers and he might have had like a little bit of a reputation. Yet he was going home to his wife and his in-laws committing some brutal horrific crimes Like it, it, they're so unassuming and that's also what we find with the westernised uh, serial killers as well, is just how unassuming they look, so that's something that's also quite interesting like I said, a little bit of food for thought, but that is all from me uh, this week I feel like this video aspect of it is going to be horrendous, I do apologise if you watching on the youtube but uh we'll see how we go with editing and uploading and we'll kind of go from there but thank you so much for joining me today if you want to get in touch and talk about today's episode you can do that if you want if you want the best way to get in touch with me is on facebook or instagram search up at coffee and crime podcast that's n in between coffee and crime not the word and it's the letter n um, also, you guys can head over to Redbubble, uh, the website Redbubble, either.com .com or .co.nz or .whatever works in your country, and if you search Coffee and Crime Pod, you can find the little merch store that I've got set up. Um, I'm still waiting to get a few things delivered to me so that I can actually show them off properly But you can get like stickers pins magnets uh, t-shirts hoodies and most importantly Coffee cups you can get them in travel or just like in like coffee cups um, Yeah, like I said, I can't wait to for mine to arrive So I can actually show them off to you guys and then hopefully like do a little bit of a bulk order and then do giveaways Lots of things happening Lots of things. So we're doing like giveaways and video podcasting in 2023. That's was good. That's was good. But yeah. All right. I need to stop. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to go with editing or anything like that. So wish me luck. But that is it from me. So until next time, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will catch you guys next week for another episode of coffee and crime bye